Hello everyone and welcome to Family for Every Child's new Conversations on Care podcast. My name's Amanda Griffith and I'm the CEO at Family for Every Child. We're really excited to be launching this new podcast, which is a space where we can talk directly to practitioners about how they're providing care to vulnerable children and families around the world. So at Family for Every Child, we're a network of 40 local civil society organisations who are working on the ground in 36 countries. And these organisations have an absolute wealth of knowledge and experience from years of working with children and communities to develop solutions to improve children's care. This is the first of series of our podcasts addressing the topic of care during COVID-19, which has seriously highlighted the gross inequalities that exist globally, not only between countries, but within countries. What we're seeing is a lack of access to basic health services free at point of entry, a lack of clean water for certain communities, and the inability to socially distance in cramped, overcrowded housing. In addition, there is the lockdown impact disproportionately on the poor, those who have to expose themselves to the virus to maintain a living, or relied, who used to rely on daily subsistence livelihoods that have stopped, leading to significant hikes in food prices. For practitioners, as this has also been a really challenging time, we have seen across our membership that all organisations have had to adapt rapidly to the new context and transitioned into emergency response when needed. Over recent months at Family, through our How We Care series, we've been showcasing the work of our member organisations and seeing what they've been doing to provide psychosocial support for children and families during COVID-19. We've shared the different approaches our members are taking to provide these essential therapeutic support at this very challenging time. One of those members is an organisation, is Children in Distress Network, commonly known as CINDY in South Africa. CINDY is a network of over 200 South African civil society agencies championing the rights of vulnerable children and their families. And today I'm accompanied by Reika Natu, who is the CEO at CINDY, and Suzanne Klulo, who manages their child rights advocacy program. Reika and Suzanne, welcome and thank you very much for joining me in this conversation. Reika, maybe I could start with you and just look at sort of like, sort of start to telling us really the context in South Africa, how you're faring generally in, in the country during COVID, what's been the impact of the pandemic to date? In terms of South Africa, um, I think that we're feeling well as a country in terms of how we dealt with the pandemic. I think the government responded quite quickly. Um, we got our first case around the 5th of March. By the 26th of March, we were under state of, um, national state of disaster. And the country's been under lockdown ever since. And even though there's been an ease in restrictions, there's still a total change in the way we live. And I think that's just world, worldwide. I think in terms of what COVID has done in terms of South Africa is that it's shown the, the difference between those essentially who have and those who don't. And I think the disparities that you spoke about are much clearer now. And this comes on the tail of the fact that we've now resolved what we considered the, considered the HIV pandemic mm. and the AIDS pandemic, and now we've got COVID. So we're kind of seeing how the results of the healthcare, on the healthcare system and how we cope with that. But as a country, I think we've coped well, but I think the healthcare system's taken strain. And as we prepare, prepare for the second wave, um, I think we'll see the strain on the healthcare system a lot more. Um, but in terms of a country, I think that we, we're all going through the trauma of COVID and we're all going through the day-to-day -day coping of it. 
Um, we've had some bizarre restrictions like the alcohol and the, and the smoking ban, which I think a lot of people have had to cope with. Um, and my worry now that those bans are lifted is the fact that we may get an increase in our GBV, because that's what happened the last time. Suzanne, I don't know if you want to add, but that's, that's me for now. Thanks, Rika. Yeah, I think, Rika, you, you've covered the, the main points. I mean, obviously, um, we know South Africa is one of the most um, unequal countries in the world. And really what we've seen is, you know, we were, well, some people weren't aware, but most people were aware of that inequality before, but it's really just brought that to the fore now, um, which um, has helped to highlight issues that people have been trying to advocate around for a long time. Um, so I think in some ways it's a strong advocacy position for us to be in now because we can really um, push through some reforms which we've been trying to do for decades. Um, yeah. So uh, that's sort of the flip side of, of the situation. But yeah, I think you've covered... Are there any examples of that, Suzanne, then, that where you can see that there is some, <clears throat> some sort of emerging trends that you're able to build on and, and really highlight? Yeah, so particularly in the area of social grants, um, that's been an area um, that has been quite a major area of advocacy in South Africa for, for decades. Um, and Cindy was part of a group that uh, managed to get an increase in the child support grant um, in particular. Um, there have also been other social grants introduced, but that was the one that we advocated for in particular. Um, and that was a, a, an area of advocacy that we have been trying to work on for many years. In, with regards to the child support grant, we've been trying to get that increase to be more in line with inflation at the, at the moment. Well, previously, it was basically below all recognized poverty lines within South Africa. Um, so there'd been a lot of push to try and have an increase. Um, we were looking at specifically an increase for kinship carers, um, but actually we managed to succeed in getting an overall increase of the child support grant, which supports around 12 million children in South Africa. So it's really very extensive. So one of the things I was going to ask you, Rick, is can you see any emerging trends already coming out of what you're seeing happening at a community level? One of the trends that, that, that's happening at community level is a lot of the programs we want we're doing now, the donors have said you need to go virtual. So we need to find ways in order to do this virtually. Hmm. And and one of the issues we're having is two two issues. One is one of the beneficiaries is the adolescent young women and girls. So we know with them they change phone numbers consistently. So how do you track and how do you trace this particular person when they're on the fourth or fifth phone number? And what we're finding is sometimes the records that we have may have had the number at the beginning of the project. And then if, if the facilitator forgot to update that number, we now have lost this beneficiary. We can't access them. So that's been the one thing. The second thing is that not everyone has access to these smartphones. You know, we pretend that everybody does, but they don't. Hmm. Um, so that's the biggest thing. And then it's, it's all very well to have the phone, but then where do you get the data from? So if you're unemployed and you actually don't have money and you make, you want the vulnerable that we're trying to serve, how do you even access what we're trying to do? Um, so as much as I think one of the trends is as much as we as NGOs are speeding to try and change how we do things and change the systems to accommodate the new way of doing things, I, I think one of the things is we're going to have to rewrite the way we do funding and rewrite the way that we look at the programs we run because we're not going to be looking at the things like venue costs and catering costs, our costs and our data costs, um, for example. 
Um, so I think one of the trends is, and especially for NGOs, is the divide between trying to implement, but then you don't have the money to give the resources in order to implement. So you can have the resources to implement, but if the beneficiary doesn't have the resources to receive what you have, um, it, it, it's a bit of a catch-22. And I think that's one of the trends that's coming out. Um, the other the other trend I think that's coming out is, I think what it what it's also clearly showing is that maybe our healthcare system is not as bad as people say that it is, because to date we've coped. Um, and with the second wave, we're still coping. You know, we're not seeing people dying on the street. And, and, and I think that that is a huge trend that we don't focus on the fact that we've actually done well. Um, the third thing that's coming through is the fact that people see South Africa as this middle-income country and they, they assume that we are wealthy. But the divide is so great that the poor are still as poor as they were, if not poorer, before, you know, the democracy happened. So that trend, I think, is, is not so much a trend, it's just the reality. And I think that that reality is not made clear often. That's really helpful, Rick. So, but perhaps we could transition more into sort of thinking, so what's that meant to Cindy in terms of their particular ways of working, some of the challenges you've experienced as a frontline? You referred to some of those, and I think that digital divide has come through consistently across all of our members, even those working in the US have said yeah. that this is a real problem because when you're working with, as, as you say, mobile communities, because they work with unaccompanied minors and therefore they say these these people do yeah. not have access to data and 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 and, and as you say not necessarily that easily accessible when you're relying on digital technology to reach them so that that's a really interesting yeah. aspect that i think that's coming through did you want yeah. to talk about Suzanne? So, so one of our motivations um, behind the psychosocial support booklet that we developed, um, We Play, We Connect, um, We Are Brave is what it's called, was to, we, we were really thinking about what about people who might have no access to um, data or, or have limited access and or their, their financial situation has changed and so they really are not spending money on, on data. Mm. Um, and so we got together with a group of some of our strategic partner organizations and um, we brainstormed around this idea. And um, there were so many excellent resources out there and available on the internet, but we were just worried they weren't getting to the right people. Um, and language was also a consideration because um, most of the resources are developed in English. There were some, obviously, in, in local language. Um, so we then um, decided to try and pull together some of those resources and added in some additional resources to create a booklet that would work on building um, positive connection between caregivers and children during that time. And in particular, we were looking at um, more rural communities or communities where children may be in the care of an elderly caregiver um, who may have um, you know, challenges with accessing stuff off the internet, for example. Um, and so that's why we developed this booklet. And it's, it's a child-friendly booklet. Um, it's very, very simple to use. It has um, you know, some practical information around coronavirus, um, about keeping yourself safe, around you know, what social distancing is, how to wear and take care of your mask. Um, it also has information on social grants and um, how to access that, um, where to access health support and other support for you know, victims of violence, for example, or to report 
um, initially during lockdown, there were several cases, well, not several, more than several cases of police violence towards people. Um, and so, you know, there were um, numbers there for reporting of that type of incidents as well. Um, and then some fun activities for um, the caregivers and children to do together to try and create that connection um, with the idea that the, the more we can encourage connection and fun and play in, in during this time, um, the safer children will be in the long run. That's really so, yeah, that was the inspiration. Interesting. And so did you get um, sort of children involved in developing that? Was there any input from them? Into yeah, <laughs> it's a good question. Ideally, we would have loved to have had children involved with the lim limitations in movement and access mm -hmm. that just wasn't possible. But um, many of the resources that, that we used were resources that were existing already or were developed by organizations that work on a daily basis with children and mm -hmm. use that information. Um, and so I guess one could say they, they'd sort of been tried and tested with children um, during, during their everyday use of that information. And then there were some others that we developed um, more specifically just to, to make the book flow. Um, but yeah, so we didn't specifically consult with children for the resource, but uh, they are resources that would have been used previously and had feedback from children in their usage. Yeah, Interesting. I don't think we were able to, due to the context at the time as well, because even though that's something that we'd want to do, mm. I think at the time that this particular booklet was created, it was impossible. There was no ways we could have had any child participation um, in this. Um, just another comment, I think one of the things that the COVID has brought out is the underlying brutality in South Africa. Mm. And I think that that underlying brutality is something that that is what Cindy's trying to impact on. That is what we're trying to change. Um, and that is what we're trying to make our beneficiaries feel more secure and more safe, if that makes sense. And I think that underlying brutality is something that South Africa is going to have to pay a lot of attention to. And as the president says, that's our other pandemic. Mm -hmm. and it is a pandemic because people are dying from this. And a 42% increase in the first week of lockdown of GDB cases being reported is a lot. But this, um, well, this is really fascinating because I mean it's quite traumatic. But actually, this has consistently come every single country where there's been lockdown. There has been this spike in domestic violence, and so I mean, it's what what do we do about that? Because the, the, not only does one have it's been very difficult to respond to those cases because of the very context in which you are trapped with the perpetrator. Mm -hmm but also children witnessing that mm -hmm. and then the, the amenability of services to be able to respond to that but mm -hmm. then also then that's going to live on because of course the potential to respond with services is going to be very delayed in these situations in which case the trauma the, the incredible sense of being trapped in this violent setting is going to be very long-term experience so mm -hmm. what what, what in, in what ways are you thinking that you can work on this which is as you say it's another example of whereby the underlying situation of inequality the underlying situation of violence are both been there and we've all worked on these issues for a long time but COVID seems to have just lifted the lid off Pandora's box and said you've all got to look at this now because this has become so harshly uh, people's reality but how are you responding to this whole issue of, of gender-based violence and domestic violence generally? 
So a, a second resource that we're still in the process of developing and, and mostly because this is a very complex issue and mm. we are trying to simplify a complex issue um, to be able to be used by what we call first responders. So people who first would come into contact with um, a woman or a child or a boy or a man for that matter who've mm. been um, a victim of violence. Mm. Um, we're looking at um, a resource that looks at... Um, trauma so um it recognizes some of the um common signs of trauma in children mm -hmm. um and then provides um some guidelines and support for um how to respond um and and where to refer children on for further assistance <clears throat> um so that is one of the other areas that we're we're looking at in terms of responding to to issues of trauma um, and it's, you know, obviously um, levels of um, interpersonal violence are very high in South Africa. And as you say, Amanda, that really has an effect on children who witness. We know that that's a form of trauma for children to witness that type of interpersonal violence. We also know that children who grow up in, in violent homes in general are more likely to experience violence themselves. Mm. Um, and then we also mustn't forget the violent history that South Africa itself has come mm. through as a country. And um, there were some large concerns at the very beginning when we had this very strong response from the police and the army um, that for many people this would bring up um, really traumatic painful memories of, of some of our past situations um, so I think that just generally the levels of trauma within our communities and it's not something that we um, talk about a lot in general in our in our work we talk about psychosocial support but it's this is much more specific it is really more specific um, and so um, it's an area that quite a few NGOs have started to look at and and it's one area that we are partnering with two other um, organizations one based in Cape Town that's specialized in trauma responses and one based here in Peter Maritzburg with us um, who are um, experts in working with children who've experienced loss. Mm. Um, and so we're, we're developing that resource. And, and we would hope in the future this could be a resource people can use, but also to add a training module to that resource for um, first responders. So the, can I just explore that a bit with you? Because I think things like social so, uh, psychosocial support is a very generic term which lots yes. of people use. And I yes. think it would be really helpful for practitioners to hear what does that mean to Cindy? How do you approach that? But then also this importance of trauma-informed work and how you'll be gradually developing that. Can you explore that a bit more with me so that, so that people can see what that looks like? Yeah. So psychosocial support for, for us at Cindy is a much more general term that says um, people are living in a certain situation. Um, they have capabilities and needs and um, strengths and resilience in themselves that need supporting. Um, and we approach that from what we call a solution focused approach. So we tend not to come in with, here's what you should do, but we come in to say, you know, we meet people where they're at and, and we help them to explore other areas, other avenues of, of how they could um, f deal with some of the, the challenges that, that they're facing to draw on their resilience from the past. So it's a much broader um, term and, and it would involve an individual, a family, a community. So it's, a, it's really looking at what's existing already, what could be strengthened, what else could be done in that situation um, and it would cover things from 
um, nutritional support to access to healthcare, access to education, access to the correct enabling documents to get whatever government support is available to you, but you might not be accessing right there and then because you didn't have a birth certificate, for example. Right. It's a much more generic kind of, um, perhaps what, what in some instances, some people would see more as social work mm. um, kind of work. Um, whereas in South Africa, our social workers tend to be more focused on statutory type work. So looking at foster care placements or placement to residential care. This is the more sort of generic kind of um, support to families. Okay. Um, okay. Trauma-informed work is um, much more complex, I want to say, um, and is... I, I guess the area that we're facing our challenge with in terms of developing this resource is that the risk, when you enter into trauma-informed work, the risk of re-traumatization is very high. And so what we have to be very conscious of is that we don't dilute our message to, to make it understandable to frontline responders. To, we mustn't dilute it to the extent that we then cause an oversimplification of the response mm. um, and and that's what's taking us a while just to make sure we're working through that um, and and the idea is that people wouldn't enter into that space without the skills but they would know they would be able to recognize um, a, 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 the difference between a, a, a stress response and a trauma response mm. and know um, what not to do, if that makes sense, to re-traumatize someone and where else they could get help um, to, to respond to that situation. So I think you've raised some really important points there, Suzanne, and that is the importance of training the staff so that they're ready the whole point of do no harm so actually it some sometimes it's better to do nothing than it is to take action because yeah. you could cause more trauma and, and more damage and more abuse and and i guess the other piece that i'm aware of um in some countries and i don't know if that's possible is also the support to workers because pe staff who are working in this much more complex and challenging topics and very sensitive areas do, yeah. To what extent do you have to not just provide training, but also look at things like supervision for those staff? Yeah, so um, one of the other areas that we did network with at Cindy initially was this idea of how could, we immediately were thinking of, you know, first responders and how, how we could get support for them. Yeah. Um, so we did um, manage to connect with a group in Peter Maritzburg who are it's actually a group of psychologists and social workers who've offered to provide that support for free so that's on a more generic um, basis but in particular in response to this um, trauma resource that we're developing um, the other area that we were very conscious of is that some of those first responders themselves may have also experienced trauma um, and so now we are asking them to enter into a place where their trauma may re-emerge. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, it's really been looking um, at that and obviously included in our training. So there's a lot of self-reflection in the in the manual and the one organisation that's partnering with us in particular has got a very good model of working at community level that um, includes an element of self-reflection and self-care. Mm -hmm. um, and it has been evaluated and has come up, you know, it, it received a very good... Um, response in terms of the evaluation um, so it's looking at, at that um, firstly um, 
you know, we can't we can't guarantee that we are going to be able to um, provide support to the people because we don't know who will use this booklet. Mm -hmm. um, so it's mm -hmm. making sure that there are nationally collected networks where people know they can go and access additional support. Um, but also there are things that we can do for ourselves on a daily basis um, to help um, support ourselves in our self-care so and and then to be self-aware enough to recognize when we might need to go for further help um, so, so yeah. if I sort of summarize some of the key points in that is yeah. one of them is working on resilience one yeah. of them is working on a strength-based approach so yeah. and and a solutions orientation and and I, I think that those are the sort of things that one would really want to emphasize for any practitioners yeah into this area of work yeah. is to make sure that they've got all of those things in place for children, yes. for the communities you're working with, but also yeah. for members of staff as well. Clearly the We Play, We Connect and We Are Brave booklet has been very successful and it's really excellent to see a new initiative come out of the COVID crisis, as well as the advocacy opportunity to address social grants. COVID has clearly highlighted the inequalities in South Africa, the digital divide that can lead to the most marginalised being further disenfranchised from basic services, and the complexity of working to reduce violence, which requires skilled interventions and even for first responders to work in a trauma-aware way. My thanks to Ray Kanatu and Susan Klulo from Cindy in South Africa. If you have found this discussion useful, please join us for more Conversations on Care, our podcast as part of Family for Every Child's How We Care series, Practitioners for Practitioners. Thanks and bye.